And I think this is, again, a misconception that many people still have, is that they think that attackers will be like, I must craft this amazing, complicated zero day. But they're not going to spend days, weeks, even months creating and researching a zero day if you've put a load of keys in your GitHub repo. Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist at Intel. I talked to Sarah Young, a cloud security advocate at Microsoft, about our evolving security landscape, low-hanging fruit, and ways to address our very human vulnerabilities. Enjoy, and please subscribe to hear more important open source conversations. For more from the open.intel team, find us at open.intel.com or at open at Intel on Twitter. Hey, Sarah. I'm, I'm talking to Sarah Young. She's with Microsoft. She's a cloud security evangelist. I'm very excited to talk to Sarah. I met her, actually, at Hacker Summer Camp. And I've been looking forward to getting this scheduled for a while. So this is, this is going to be really fun for me. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and, and, and chat, chat about things. Another hallway conversation <laughs> like at the con. I love it. Yeah. This, that's, that's, that's my approach to podcasting, really. I, you know, nerds talking. It's <laughs> nerds having a chat. That, that's that's the way to go, in my opinion. So, Sarah, tell me tell me a little bit about yourself. I know you've been you've been in security for many years. You know a lot of things because I've you know I've heard you speak. I've I've, I've read I've read some things about you on the internet, not not in a creepy way. Uh, but tell us a little. <laughs> let us tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, as you said already, um, I work at Microsoft. I'm a cloud security advocate, which basically means I get to advocate to the community on behalf of Microsoft. Um, but to be honest with you, so, some people think that sounds like I've got to go sell things. I, I do not. I go and talk about security issues. We advocate about good security practices, etc. And I also advocate for the community back into Microsoft as well. So things that the community are concerned about or things that are topical or, or uh, things like that. Um, I spend a lot of time doing that as well. So it's a very give and take thing. Um, I go to, uh, some people call me like professional conference attender. Um, it is only like a small bit of my job. Uh, it does take obviously the most visible part of my job, but I really enjoy uh, going going to meet the community and finding out what's topical because it's important. And it's also important that we show up and just be with the community as well, because that's a really important part of what we do and how we uplift security posture more generally. I love it. That's a very cool job and, and an important one, important work that you're doing. Lifting up the community is important for all of us, especially right now, right? Security is on everyone's mind. There have always been high profile attacks, but just in the last few years, I feel like there's a heightened scrutiny, especially around open source security. Do you feel that way? Yes, it's interesting because if you go back, if we sort of go back 10 years, there was very little focus on security outside of security people. And then we had some quite high profile breaches. Um, I'm talking... Yeah, and I'm talking like solar winds and, and all ten, of those. Yeah, oh, yeah, and well, and well before, even, sure, sure. Yeah, well before you've got Equifax and mm -hmm. some of these things that happened a long time ago, and they were they they affected like millions of people, and suddenly I think the general public became 
a lot more aware of security as as a thing. And so that was kind of our first, because before that security, um, it was still a, it was still a specialty in in mm-hmm. IT, but it was only security people that really cared about security. Whereas we started to get breaches as more people's lives go went digital and as they do in ever increasing amounts, these breaches have started affected like millions of people. And then generally that's uplifted people's awareness. So that was about 10 years ago. But now about I'd say maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago, another change happened, which was people started talking about open source because when people became more initially aware that security was a problem, they would go and put pressure on vendors to fix things and have patches, et cetera. But then we've seen issues in open source security and open source security, of course, is different in the sense that you can't just go and complain or push a vendor to release a patch and so it was a whole different problem and also the the thinking has evolved as well though because originally I, I think a lot of organizations and people thought my product must come from a vendor because they know how to secure it best and anything open source must be bad because it's been done by lots of different people it's been developed by all kinds of people out there on the internet we don't know what they're doing how could it possibly be secure having said that as well there's been a flip in that in that some people argue that in fact open source things could arguably be more secure because they have the scrutiny of so many different people from different places and in the reality probably somewhere in the middle is true right. in that some projects are very well scrutinized for security and some aren't so it's been interesting how it's developed certainly over 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 time and but i think at least now there's an appreciation that um, open source security is d- slightly different to enterprise security, um, although they are intrinsically linked. Because of course, if you take open source stuff and put it in your enterprise, then you have to care about that as well, right? And you have, and in, just in the last couple of years, you have you have people from the outside, let's say, non technical people. You have uh, government agencies, and in, in the case of the U.S suddenly, you know, issuing all of these mandates and got, you know, all this guidance and, and, and frankly, demands, right? F- fix your stuff. <laughs> fix your stuff, please. Wave the magic wand and, and, and make it so. And, and I think as a result, you have a little bit like these, these weird things I've seen. And I don't know if you've seen these, but we're like, you know, somebody will ha- send a vendor checklist to an individual project maintainer, stuff like that. I don't know. What are you saying? It's amusing to you. Yes. Okay, I that's funny you say that because I have seen an ex, an exchange exactly like that where someone had posted in a project I need this fixed. It ha- there was a bug and it had come up. It was a bug. It was medium security issue. Nothing too terrible, but also should probably be fixed. I could understand from an enterprise perspective why you wouldn't want to use that in your environment until it had been fixed. And they were giving the maintainers a massive amount of hassle in the GitHub chat saying, you need to fix this, you need to fix this. And and it was quite aggressive. And again, I, I saw this on Twitter and it was quite aggressive and it showed almost a I don't know whether it was 
someone just being very belligerent or or misunderstanding the difference between open source and say a vendor because a vendor if if they have a product you know like microsoft and and there's a bug or you need something doing you need a feature there there are usually proper official constructive channels where where you can request that and they usually have a process and a fixed time etc whereas open source of course these are volunteers. These are people doing this often in their spare time, right? And and it's, it's you can't just demand that an open source project fixes something. And uh, the maintainer did send a very, I thought, very classy response. And I paraphrase, but they basically said, "Look, we're volunteers. If you if you want me to prioritize this and fix it, then this is my hourly rate." Right. You know, because because this is my hourly rate, and I can put other things to one side, and you can pay me, and I will fix it. And there was a bit of debate going on on this thread whether that was uh, the the thread on socials about whether that was acceptable or not. And I personally think it is because sure, I mean that's what was, a vendor says. You know, a support contract would do if you need something fixed. Here, here's the rate. Ex- Exactly. And it was, and, and a colleague of mine who um, I absolutely adore, he's a very smart guy and extremely eloquent. He said to me once that paying for something is merely allowing you to reprioritize your time and therefore you should never be embarrassed. Um, of course, this is outside, uh, this was before he worked at Microsoft, uh, to, you should never be embarrassed to ask for money for something that is taking up your time. Because, you know, obviously we're all employed and our employer gives us money to, uh, our employer gives us money for our time. And, and, and it's nothing different if you're being asked to do something outside the scope of what you normally do. But I think for, I think still there's a, there's a, a long way to go for some businesses, probably businesses and individuals that don't spend time in the community to truly understand the difference between open source and a product that comes from a vendor, like you said, with a support contract where you can, well, you shouldn't, but you can bang your fist on the table and and demand something gets fixed. I wonder actually how you feel about this. I wonder if it's a double-edged sword, right? So on one hand, I worry sometimes that, that re- reinforcing the idea that a lot of open source maintainers and contributors are volunteers, that that reinforces the, the idea that it is the stuff of hobbyists. Whereas, you know, in fact, the, most of the world runs on open source software. This is not, it's not hobby. It's not a hobby. It's very much an enterprise yeah. thing. It's critical infrastructure. It's, it's, it, it, it has arrived, right? And I, I always wonder if that's, um, if, if reminding I... people uh, of the volunteers is, is a bit of a double-edged sword. I know what you mean. And I think it depends on who you're talking to. So I think if you're talking to your in the weeds, hands-on practitioners, people in the community, I think they do understand the difference and appreciate. And they're often the people also who maybe the hobbyists, um, I don't want hobbyists in inverted commas that are actually maintaining this stuff. And certainly hobbyists, as you said, it is the wrong word. Um, it's something that I like to call it 
extracurricular activities. It might not be what you do day to day as your job, but it's still something Mm -hmm. that you put a lot of time and effort and love into. So I think at the practitioner, the the doer level, I don't think that's so much of a problem. I think the problem comes higher up in an enterprise where you have your execs and your hands-off tech people who might not understand. And to be honest, I still think if, if you're not super technical or you haven't come from a tech background since open source really exploded, you might be, or you, you might have execs who are thinking back to, do you remember shareware? I'm thinking of doom back in like the nineties. Doom. Okay. I love Doom. So I I can't play Doom as an aside. I get motion sick. It's really sad. I I, I loved, I loved trying to play. What was the one uh, my dad used to, I, I I was a nerd, right? I mean, I still am, but you know, my, my dad would come in and borrow my computer to play Wolfenstein. So yeah, that's a whole thing. Um, And then Doom came and, but I could never play it because I would, yeah, I'd get sick. So funny with Doom, I didn't like to play it that much, but I used to like to watch my dad play it over his shoulder. And I must have only been, give away my age, but I would have only been six or seven when Doom was a thing. And my, I remember my mom used to tell my dad that because uh, it's scary. I realized that my dad was younger than I am now, which just blows my mind. Uh, and my dad kind of ignored my mom and played it anyway and let me watch. And then I used to get scared at night because I used to think because kids and imagination that I had a baron of hell in my bedroom, which was obviously not true, but I did get quite scared of that. So coming back to open source though, (laughs) I remember that the, the at least the first bit of doom was shareware and i think that that was i believe if i if i'm not mistaken it was one of the very first pieces of software that was more professionally made that you didn't have to pay for but i think that uh, some people who have been maybe out of the loop with how open source has evolved the first thing that comes to mind when they think of something free is something like doom and they think oh well that's a game it couldn't be possibly professional it couldn't be used in an enterprise environment and i reckon if you went around execs and leadership and and actually explain to them how much of their enterprise undoubtedly runs on open source they'd probably be pretty horrified because i'm not even sure they realize yeah. Yep. All your critical systems, they're all doomed, basically. They're just doomed. Yeah. They're all doomed. <laughs> they're all doomed. <laughs> so so yeah, so getting getting back to open source and, and security and 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 um and you know, hey, whether you're a volunteer or whether you this is your day job and you get paid to contribute, uh, because you were fortunate enough to be in that position. We we've all been we've all been in those situations where we've maybe done a really stupid thing. <laughs> Let's let's talk about let's talk about how how security fits into all to this ecosystem, right? At the end of the day, it's it's developers, it's humans, and humans are we are that we are we are responsible for keeping the whole thing going, but we are also the weak link potentially, and and we've all we've all done the dumb thing. Who among us has not frantically googled? Wait, how how do I scrub uh, GitHub? How do I scrub this branch from existence yes. because I've committed something completely idiotic that doesn't belong there, and I'm going to take down something critical? Um, but yeah, so let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about where, you know, where human vulnerability comes into this conversation. Yeah. Oh, so many things. I mean, security is fascinating on so many levels. And I often say that the tech side of security is compared with 
people is actually relatively straightforward. Now, what I mean by that is that we know what to do in technical security terms. It doesn't mean, by the way, that actually implementing it in real life can be easy, but we know you should be using good secure coding practices. You don't hard code secrets into your PR and then push it into the repo and (laughs) things like that. Yeah, please don't, please don't, because then, as you said, you have to scrub it and it's awful and messy. Uh, But people, people are much more interesting because people, as you said, people are, people are humans. Humans are um, fallible and they make mistakes. So, and, and so I'm sure everybody who works for any organization of any size has done security awareness training at some point in their lives. And then if you look at security awareness, there's also a balance to be struck between how much do you tell people and how little do you tell people? Because of course, there's also that psychological issue of people getting fatigue. If you wag your finger too much and say, do not do this, do not do this, people will get bored of listening to it and switch off from the message. So infant infinitesimally harder to deal with in security is people. But one of the things that over the years I've seen that I I would like to apologize to anybody um, in, in the development world or wider IT who's dealt with security and had a bad experience because there are many out there. Over the years, security has been very unhelpful. A lot of people have been unhelpful. And when other parts of the business or other, you know, other types of IT people have come to us and said, can you help with this or can you review this? There was a culture in the past of people being very unhelpful and saying, oh, you're doing that wrong. Oh, no. Or do it this way. It's going to take you three to four hours extra and you just should because security, because many security professionals saw it as their their God-given duty, because we are a bit like this. I must secure the business. This is my God-given duty. And you must do as I say, because you just must. And the problem with that, of course, is that while security might be the top priority for a security person, there are other pressures from other people other people have other things driving them and other pressures. So if you've got to get um, a release out, whether it's open source, whether it's, you know, a vendor thing, if you've got to get a, you know, a new release or a new version of something out and you have a security issue and you have a deadline and the security person gives you a way to fix it, but it's going to take you three extra days, or they just say, no, you can't do that. and don't give you a reason, then people are probably not going to go and do it. Newsflash. And I think security are getting better at accepting that making, allowing people to do things the right way, easy, in an easy manner, is the only way that we will get the whole security posture uplifted better because it is unrealistic to expect someone with other time pressures, other pressures on what they do to prioritize security because we've seen over the years, this doesn't work. If you've got to pick between, you know, losing, uh, I know, making $10 million and fixing a medium security bug, for example, a, an organization will always pick, almost right. always pick making $10 million and and letting the security bug slide. So we have to make 
doing the right thing, the easy thing, because if we don't, people will not do it. And and that's just fact. And I think we've made leaps and bounds in the last few years about security, about security, understanding this. Um, there, there are some phrases you've probably heard bandied about called secure by design and secure mm. by default. Mm-hmm. So essentially may, put, taking the pressure where we can off individual people, users, developers, whatever, to have all the security defaults turned on. Because in the past, uh, I mean, I'm using, I, I realize not open source, but if you take the Windows OS, I work for Microsoft, we're going to take Windows. If you take the Windows OS uh, years ago, in order to turn on a lot of the security features in older versions of Windows, you would have to go in and change it yourself, or you would have to apply policy to you know change groups of computers. Whereas now you boot up Windows 11 and it's all just turned on by de- default. You have to go in and turn it off if you don't want it. And it's so much easier to do that from a uplifting security perspective, not because people don't want secure operating systems, but because they don't, they just don't have time. There are other pressures and and that's just life and realism. So yeah, that that's I think where where we're going. I think from an open source perspective, it's not that much different because it's that we need to there are now obviously more people who are concerned about security because the awareness has grown, but still doing the right thing needs to be the easy thing. So from a developer's perspective, we have a lot of both paid for and open source tooling that you can use to help you not make silly mistakes. So you gave the example, and this is such a common mistake um, of, you know, pushing a secret or keys into a GitHub repo. And it's a really easy mistake to make. And th- and the worst bit is as well, if you do it, then as you said, scrubbing the branch takes <laughs> forever. Whereas there are tools that you can run in your development environment that will look for anything that looks like secrets, that looks like creds. And if you go and try and push it, it will actually stop you and say, whoa, 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 whoa please excuse me, please stop. Um, This looks like a key. Are you sure you want to push this? And it will stop you before you push that key. So then you can go back, change it, pull it out of your code. And rather than hours trying to scrub a branch, it's maybe 15, 20 minutes. And and that's the kind of stuff we, we should be getting at. And what I really like is in the last few years, this developer tooling, it's been around for a while, but I would say to anybody listening, if you haven't looked at some of these developer tooling, and there's multiple tools out there, if you haven't looked at developer tooling since in the last three, four years, go and look at it again, because in its early days, it used to be very clunky developer security tooling. And it would still, although it was helping, it was arguably, again, quite slow, quite mm-hmm. clunky, yeah. and it would still slow you down quite a bit. In the last few years, it's really, really improved. It's much slicker. It it gives you useful suggestions like, and it's much, much easier to work with. And I, I can understand though, if folks have not looked at it for a few years or they've had bad experiences with security in the past, that they may not have looked at it. So I very much encourage people to go and have a look at what's out there now, because there's a ton of stuff that is significantly better than it used to be because that the thinking and security has changed that 
it's not just that we need to make a tool that, that say, warns you that, that you're making a mistake or, or advises you to do something different. What it advises you to do needs to be fairly quick and easy so you'll actually feel inclined to do it. And where possible, we'll even automate it. So I you know, couldn't go on a podcast without talking about all the AI stuff out there, of course, right. and the co-pilots. Oh, I know, yeah. And, and, you know, they will, um, and, and aside from just helping you code, they will, and, and, and do good code and write code generally, they will also, and, and obviously the tools are in their early days, so I expect them to improve, but they can also highlight where you've got a security issue as well. You know, if you put SQL injection in or, or something like that, it can nudge you and be like, yo, 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 uh, what are you doing? <laughs> can you can you re, can you look at this again and i think that's uh, i i think as well we're also i know it's a cheesy phrase so forgive me but we're empowering developers to take more responsibility for their code up front and so rather than in the past where say devs would submit the code to a security person and the security person would say, no, you need to fix blah, 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 blah. It's now that like just generally code quality, it's kind of all coming into the same issue. Security is becoming an, an an issue of code quality as well. And by having all this tooling, devs can actually just fix their own code. Now, I'm not saying that means security is going to go away, but it means that there's that they are being empowered to do it themselves and just look at it as overall part of your development piece, which I think is really nice because it's more of a, hey, you know, I want to write good quality code that that includes security. And I'm not basically going to teacher saying, please look at my stuff. Is this good? Which I think was more the dynamic in the past, which wasn't as healthy. Because of course, we're not at school. We're all professionals. We're all very skilled. And sometimes um, it, I think it caused a lot of friction. Yeah. I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned all those things. Those are all really excellent recommendations. And I I agree, actually, that the tooling and the, the stuff, the progress that's been made in the last few years. And I think and a heightened focus on developer experience, maybe, ironically, the topic of our previous episode. Um, yeah, I think all of those things have made have, have made progress in, in making things, making the secure way the easy way, right? As you said, which I agree with. I think that's so important because you can't fix things at an individual human, human developer level without making things a lot easier. I, I think there's a ways to go as well because... As I, as I said, security has not had the best relationship with devs and other parts of the IT organization in the past. And we used to be, uh, I haven't got a better phrase than this, gatekeepy, as in we'd be oh, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. oh, security, you couldn't possibly <laughs> understand this, Mr. Developer yes, or it's Mrs. Mysterious. Mrs. De- it's very mysterious and we're very clever and you couldn't possibly understand it. And we used to almost purposely not explain things. And I don't know why, because certainly we don't have enough security people. And I don't think for a second that the general wider IT community, having a better awareness and understanding of security is going to get rid of security people's jobs because we just don't have enough people and there will always be space for security experts. But I found that when security is explained in uh, in the right way. And I don't want to say simple because I feel like that's disrespectful because we're talking about very skilled people. It's just that developers and other parts of IT 
traditionally did not have to think about security. That was someone else's problem. They just have different focus. You know, they have a different focus. And when you explain why they need to do something in the right way and why it's important, honestly, I have never had a single person in IT not understand. And uh, it has all, and so therefore, my conclusion is that it has always been security's fault that people didn't understand why it was so important. I think as well, one of the things I like to do when I go to events, I tell a lot of stories, either real life stories or I give stats about the number of attacks that are out there because I do think still there's a naivete and and not because people are dumb or anything like that because they just haven't experienced it about how prevalent attacks are and particularly attacks that we call low hanging fruit where it's a silly mistake that people commonly make uh, and usually by mistake rather than anything else and attackers know this so they will go for those really easy Mm -hmm. low-hanging fruits they're not super proud of their craft it's not like they think oh i must do this incredibly difficult (laughs) yeah they're like i must do and craft and i think this is again a misconception that many people still have is that they think that Attackers will be like, I must craft this amazing, complicated zero day that has no patches, that is brand new. And sometimes they do come up and sometimes people use zero days, but they're not going to spend days, weeks, even months creating and researching a zero day if you've put a load of keys in your GitHub repo. They're going to take the keys and use the keys and get in and do things. They, they look for the easiest path because why would they not? It's a time right. effort thing. And, and, and so why would you? And, and, and I think still that there is a misconception perhaps outside security for a lot of folks that, that it's someone sat in a basement with a hoodie thinking up a very incredibly complicated hack. And, and that's not usually nine times even more. Nine and a half times out of 10, that is not the case. It's also not helped, by the way, by when hacks hit the media, they will often the 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 business or the organization, if it hits the media, they will often come out with statements like, this was a very sophisticated attack. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it was. That generally very is the statement mysterious. they come out with. <laughs> yeah, they say this was a very sophisticated attack. And being someone who digs into where, where possible, uh, I, I'm usually only privy to the public information as everybody else is. But being able to read between the lines often or when it comes out in the wash further down the line, usually these very sophisticated attacks in inverted commas are not. And yeah. they they say it as, as a PR thing to save face because, of course, there's a lot of reputational damage that comes with having a very public breach. Sure. And I think that also adds to the mystique that you're only – that maybe – you know, having the same username and password somewhere or not patching or or things like that or missing a few patches, that's not going to make a big difference, but it 100% will, 100%. So you you, uh, you talk about low-hanging fruit from the hacker side. I wonder if we could just, just from the developer side, I wonder if we could talk about low-hanging fruit there. Like what are the mistakes that, you know, we all make them, again, we're human. What are the easiest to fix though? The, the things that we, where we should be looking for our own low-hanging fruit, like yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So it's, I'm honestly, it hasn't changed that much over the years. This is what Fair. 
it, it always blows my mind. So we, we call it as, as a general umbrella for everything, good security hygiene. So it's things and, and I have this conversation probably at least once a day, if not more, that it's all good looking at shiny tooling and thinking you desperately need this tooling and you need to do things, you need to completely change up the way you work. But the best, and, and research shows this as well, research from Microsoft and other other companies as well, is that if you do good security hygiene, probably about 95% of breaches, initial attacks would be prevented because attackers go for this low-hanging fruit. So in developer terms, what that means is, you know, your supply chain security. Are you pulling random libraries that you don't know where they come from? Uh, And are you pulling random libraries uh, that you don't know where they come from and you're just pulling them from the internet and integrating them into your into your whatever you're building, that's probably not a great idea. You should know where your libraries come from. And and if you don't know where it comes from, you should do some analysis and work and check it's legit and there's nothing else nasty in there because, you know, that's a really easy way in. If we look at like uh, Kubernetes and containers, same idea. Don't pull random container images from the internet where you don't know where they came from. Uh, You should be using containers that have been, you know, verified that they are clean and tidy or if your organization has built their own and you should be using a repo and and just using things from there uh th- then we've already talked about it a couple of times you know make sure you're if you, if you have a public repo you should be not pushing code and creds but, but, and but, also yeah. equally um please don't do that but also in terms of good coding practices, you shouldn't be hard coding creds and secrets into code. They should be in a key store, uh, whichever key store you want to use. I am easy. And you should be having variables in the code that should be referencing that key store. And even better than that nowadays, no matter what commercial cloud you're building on, I'll I'll use Microsoft as an example, but uh, most you most of you don't have to use hard coded strings and stuff anymore identity has evolved way beyond that you can use what we call in microsoft land a managed identity and but essentially what it is is an identity that is like a machine it's a non-human identity but it's managed in the inam system in in your identity provider and you can put way more security over it you can monitor it more easily there's a much more control and you, you know that is way better than using a string and then of course I'd be wrong to not mention, of course, just good secure coding practices. It hasn't changed that much. Still, SQL injection, directory traversal, all of these things, they are still a problem and attackers will will look for mistakes in your code. So things like that are really important. And there was another one I was going to throw there. Ah, yes. So of course, your pipeline as well, CICD, mm-hmm. uh, whatever pipeline you're using, make sure your pipeline is secure as well. And and is your code being checked as it goes through the pipeline? Uh, it is possible to inject nasty things as things go through the pipeline as well. And even more basic than that as well, because we know this is this is something that has been a problem since the beginning of time, is when you're creating identities um, in an application that you're building, for a start, it should be plugged into whatever enterprise identity provider you're using, whether it's Azure AD, which is also now known as Entra ID, or, or any other provider. But as well, are you giving machine IDs, and, and I very purposely do name this because it's probably the worst offender, 
does it have the permissions it should have to be able to work? Or have you been lazy because you couldn't work out what permissions it needed and given it like global admin? So it has God mode over everything because you've just made an attacker's life really easy if they compromise that account because they don't even have to try and privilege escalate because you've just given them the keys to the kingdom. And I get it. I totally get it. It can be difficult to work out precisely what permissions people, you know, something needs. And often that's because because it, it's a tech debt problem because the devs shouldn't really be having to work this out. They should be able to refer to documentation and work out precisely what permissions their application needs to work in the environment, but no more. But often we find that environments are not well documented. It can be hard, but I wouldn't. And, and so I don't want to take away from the fact that is actually quite a difficult thing to do, but go and talk to your security people and try and work with them and let them help you work out what permissions you need. Because these are the kind of things that that attackers know are difficult. And so they will look for them as well. Don't ever, ever, ever make the mistake that attackers, like I said before, will go and do difficult things when you've given them something easy. I think that's, yeah, I think that's really good advice. I um it, the whole the whole conversation around identity is something I find fascinating. In fact, I I would love to have you on again and t- devote the entire recording to <laughs> the entire episode to identity. The concept of human identity, machine identity. I went to a really interesting I don't even know a work mini workshop at Defcon actually, all about how to completely fake a um a, a a nice looking reputation on GitHub. Fake a, a whole GitHub profile that makes you look like, uh, you know, the, the most impressive developer on GitHub. And it, it's very interesting. Just the whole, the role that identity plays in security is an interesting topic that I would really like to explore it's, more. Oh, definitely. I, I, I know we, we, we've already talked and we, we're, we're, we're running out of time, but <laughs> just on that identity, so, so, so important because nowadays, and and this is something that's worth remembering as well. I it used to be that we had when everything was on prem, your your enterprise perimeter would be largely network based, right? We'd have loads of firewalls and blah 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 blah, and we'd have like a very easy, clearly defined. A security perimeter in, in an organization. But now in cloud, you can't do that because you might have some on-prem, you've got some cloud, you might have multiple clouds and, and it's all over the place. So the only way we can draw a security perimeter now is not with the network, but is with identity. That is how we control our perimeter by using a consistent identity. So identity is a huge big bit of security, which is really fascinating as well. So yeah, it's really important. I wanted to also ask you, just, just on a more personal note, what, what are you really excited about right now? What, what's exciting in security to you? So, well, I mean, the big thing in security at the moment, as it is with everyone, is AI. But what it intrigues me about AI is not is the security aspect. So there's two bits in, in my mind. There's using AI to uh, complement the work that security people do, adding it into tools, because a lot of security work is extremely monotonous, takes a lot of 
people hours. And by I think that AI is going to be great to get rid of some of that drudgery. It's not going to get rid of people's jobs. It just means that some of the drudgery, repetitive stuff will hopefully go away. And that means that the the security people can spend more time looking at the stuff that mm. people need to look at. And But then on the other side of things, we have a huge challenge, which is very interesting, that we need to work out how we secure all the things that people are building on AI. So, uh, but actually the good news is that it's not that different. Basically, essentially how I see it at this point in time, and it is changing at a million miles a second, is that you really need to treat AI just like any other application you, sh- you, you are building. You still need to have good secure coding practices. You need to, um, classify your data. You need to secure that. And you need to control who can access things from the identity side of things. In fact, there is not to date, I'll always caveat this with to date because it changes so quickly. We don't have some kind of magic security AI tooling that that doesn't exist. So in order, when people are building these AI applications and AI things, we're still leaning back at the moment on those traditional security hygiene best practices, that is by far and away the best thing you can do because there's a lot of talk about, oh, um, you know, this AI model poisoning, blah, blah, blah. And yes, theoretically, that is absolutely possible. It's been proven by researchers. And there is no doubt that in time there will be some kind of big breach on an AI model. I mean, it's only a matter of time because security is security. However, at the moment, as I was saying, attackers are not going to spend all this time doing something crazy with your AI model if you're not patching, if you're not, if you've got accounts with crazy privileges, if you're, if you've got vulnerable libraries, things like that, they're not going to bother to go and try and make your AI model do something crazy. They, they will still go for the easiest thing. So I think the one thing I'd say people should take, I find it really fascinating. I'm also exciting to see how the field develops. And if we do come up with some very interesting security tooling and other best practices, but right now, what I'm trying to tell everybody is do the things we've been telling you to do for years, good secure coding practices. And at this point in time, I think that's definitely the best thing you can do for uh, for for the AI field. So, But it'll be interesting to see how it develops, of course, because it's the rate of change is insane. Yeah, it really is. But the future is bright. Well, thank you so much. So, so much. I've really enjoyed this. I could talk to you all day. I, w- I wish I could, actually. I wish I could just cancel my <laughs> next meeting and then talk to you all day. I, I really appreciate it, especially, especially at uh, such an early hour. Thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you for having me. It's been great. And don't worry about the time. I am used to being up early. It's a, it's a hazard of getting to live on this side of the world. Occupational hazard. Well, I say it seems to be worth it from from what I've seen. So someday maybe I'll find out for myself. You should, you should, for sure.